This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 146 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have uh, two special guests. We have Heiko Behrens. I hope I said that right. That's correct. Hi. And we have Daniel. I didn't catch your last name, Daniel. Rodriguez. Hi from Redwood City. Before we have you introduce yourselves, we do have a quick announcement, and that is that the iFreaks are going to the Build Conference in San Francisco. Keep an eye on the mailing list. Uh, I'll also try and tweet out some stuff on the iFreaks account, uh, letting you know how to come hang out with us. The JavaScript Jabber podcast is going as well, and so uh, we'll try and, and have some kind of get-together, so if people want to come and, and meet up with us, then you can. But let's go ahead and uh, talk about our topic here. Heiko and Daniel, do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. So um, I'm Heiko. I'm with Pebble, and over there I'm wearing actual several hats. I think the one that resonates most with the core audience of this podcast is um, that I'm leading the team that at Apple would be UIKit, so um, APIs and everything that is user interface related. But as I said, I do several other things as well, and um, my team now transitioned to something that is super exciting, maybe for another podcast, and that is I'm bringing JavaScript to run directly on our wearable devices, which is super awesome, and maybe we can talk about that briefly at the end of the show. Woohoo! Yeah, I have a JavaScript podcast. Let's let's definitely talk about that after the show. As myself, uh, I'm Daniel. I'm one of the iOS engineers in the company. Not that many hats as Heiko, but I like to touch a lot of things. We are basically in charge of the application, the Pebble SDK, different parts of the iOS uh, ecosystem uh, around the company. Awesome. So we did bring you on to talk about the Pebble. Um, mm-hmm. And since my camera's on, I'll show you. I'm wearing a Pebble Time Steel. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm a fan. I know uh, some of the other panelists here have Apple Watches. Do you want to kind of outline what the differences are? Just as far as the device goes and what it's capable of between the Pebble and the Apple Watch to give people a sort of point of reference. Sure thing. So I like to think of Pebble as one of the first mover in the market when uh, everybody else was saying that there is no such thing as a smartwatch. Um, Pebble shipped it years ago. And from day one, it was um, very hackable, uh, very appealing to developers. They could um, implement applications and watch faces running directly on the watch. Um, as an independent application, and they had access and still have to um, the screen, they can literally alter every single pixel and access all the sensors. And then later, we added the ability to also talk to your phone. So it's not meant as a second screen to your phone or a companion to your existing iOS app, but the watch can live independently from the phone. The battery lasts for, I don't know, yours maybe for at least a week, I would say, maybe longer. Yeah, about a it- week. 10 days. That's nice. Yeah. 
So that's basically the core differentiator, I would say. It is meant as an independent device that has its own use cases. Um, but a uh, sure thing, you can extend your existing iOS applications, and many popular apps do that, to broaden their use case and to also take advantage of something that's always on, always on the wrist. Unlike the Apple Watch, it's actually waterproof, although we are a bit more hesitant on our marketing material. We say water resistant, but actually um, the original one was actually waterproofed up to 50 meters, I think. And you can go for a swim with it. It is, as I said, it can work without your phone. And the display, that's actually one of the most differentiators. The display is always on. It uses e-paper and therefore it is more readable the brighter it is outdoors, for example, is ideal for a watch. Yeah. The thing that's nice about it for me, as far as like at night, is that I can uh, kind of shake my wrist. I I have this maneuver that I do with my arm <laughs> to get it to come on at night. But it's nice because it's on for a second. I can kind of cover it with my hand or something if I don't want to bug my wife. And then it turns back off. Uh, the backlighting anyway. But yeah, if I'm out doing something, I can just look at it. I don't have to have the backlighting. And I think that makes a big difference for the battery life. And I think that would probably be my biggest issue with an Apple Watch if I had one. Would just be the battery life in general because... It seems like that's a, a screen just like, you know, on my iPhone, and that probably sucks down a whole bunch more power. So I personally do have an Apple Watch, and here at the company, we look at literally every verbal that comes out. We have a huge um, shelf of all the different gadgets. What I really like about the Apple Watch, and people often compare us to it, obviously, is the seamless integration with your iOS devices. So there are just a few things we cannot do. And I would love to talk about that. And Daniel can tell a lot of stories when oh, it comes yes, to <laughs> about the problems when you want to be a good citizen in the iOS ecosystem. But also the Apple Watch in perfect condition has a gorgeous display. So I said that before. Yes, we have e-paper. That's not e-ink, so don't get me wrong. It's, it's not a Kindle display where you're only, um, where you have to wait half a second until you see a new screen. In fact, we can run at 30 FPS, but it is a bit washed out. It is not high density, so it's far from being retina. It is, it is really low resolution, which is good enough for many use cases, but you will definitely, if you put them next to each other, the Apple Watch like, just looks gorgeous, just from an industrial design perspective with the display and the finish and all of that. But at the same time, I mean, you can purchase an, a classic for, what is it, $70, I wish? Yes, less than 100 Yeah. So, of course. So, we, we see us as the more hackable and affordable smartwatch on the market. Let's just say that we are from the Wozniak of the Steves, not the Jobs of the Steves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. So, I mean, this is a show for developers, not necessarily for, you know, consumers. So I'm curious, what is the development experience on the Pebble? And then related to that is, how is the experience on the Pebble when you're building an app that spans from the watch to the phone or the phone to the watch? In Pebble, you have several options. You can choose to go close to the metal and develop your watch application or your watch face in pure C. Uh, we have a very modern C API. It doesn't feel like your gram father C and you can do mostly whatever you want and everything runs in the watch. You are obviously limited in the quantity of RAM and quantity of CPU that you are going to get, but everything else is you are free to do mostly whatever with the APIs that we provide. Obviously that leaves your application running only on the watch. So there is parts that can run 
inside our phones, inside our mobile applications. These parts are normally done in JavaScript because uh, allows you to basically write once the code and we run the same JavaScript in the Android application and the iOS application. And you have another option, which is coding your own third-party app, communicating with uh, the watch directly instead of going through our application, which gives you a lot more freedom of what you can do, but obviously involves deploying an iOS and an Android application to support your application. So normally apps in the in our app store goes through basically the combo WhatsApp written in C and JavaScript extensions running on the mobile's application. Yeah, maybe it makes sense to show that um, with an example. So there is, there was an, uh, there still is an iOS application called Where To. It is uh, an iOS app you can purchase from the App Store, and it is basically listing points of interest. And the purpose of that iOS application always was to guide you to that point of interest, say a restaurant, a gas station, or something. And what the developer did is they extended the use case to the Pebble, and then they had to write that in C, yes, as as Daniel said, and it runs on the watch. But without the phone, it's actually more or less useless because it needs to know where to guide to. So where to transmits the distance and actually the direction, like north or south, to the watch. And because um, Pebble has a compass and because Pebble has an accelerometer and you have direct access to the screen... What they did is they actually implemented an arrow that always points to the point of interest on your Pebble screen. So you would basically use it as some kind of a magic wand that always shows you the, the arrow. Oh, this is where I need to go to. It is um, 200 feet in that direction. And as you move, the iOS app um, knows that you changed your location. And while the iOS app would also tell you it is um, like 100 feet in that direction, you can leave the phone in the pocket and all the, the app does, it continues to talk to the Pebble app and tells it, you know, it's now only 100 feet and it's not north, but it's now a northeast. And as the watch receives that point of data, it can accommodate for it and continues to read the compass that's built into the watch to update that arrow. So here you can see that it is more or less um, like a WatchOS 2 app. So it's not like WatchOS 1 where you remote control everything from within your phone's application. These things really act independently, but the phone can and your existing app can provide useful information to uh, enhance the experience on the watch. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I'm curious what accelerometer functions are available on the Pebble. And you access that. Can you access it with the JavaScript or only the C? So JavaScript here is a bit different. The JavaScript Danielle was mentioning is basically running on the phone. So just to put this in perspective, we are not talking about a device here that has gigabytes of storage and uh, hundreds of megabytes of RAM. We are talking about a device where your application, including code, is 64 kilobytes. So just that is about the size of an iPad icon. If you really count the pixels and multiply it by four bytes, that's about it. Um, you really have to write concise code here, and that is running on the watch in C. And on that level, you can totally access the accelerometer and get like um, readings at 100 hertz on all three dimensions. And the same is true for for a compass and all that. But in JavaScript, that's running on the phones where you don't have access to these sensors that are on the watch. So my question is then: so JavaScript runs on the phone, then not on the watch? Right now, JavaScript only runs on the on the phones. And basically, it allows you to add a lot of uh, 
extra capabilities that the watch will not have, like uh, being able to parse JSON, uh, being able to connect to the to the network, getting your location. The watch doesn't have a GPS itself, so we we fall back to the GPS on the on your mobile phone. A lot of other capabilities that the watch simply cannot do. So it's like the big brother of the watch uh, doing a lot of work for what Heiko has mentioned before. We are trying to move into this idea that you are going to run the JavaScript in the watch and you are going to write one JavaScript and that's going to be basically running in the watch or in the phone and you are not going to notice uh, where it's going to run because uh, you basically don't care. Like the parts that can be run in the watch will be run in the watch. The parts that cannot be run in the watch, like for example, using a Wi-Fi or a 3G network uh, will run in the in the phone. And are you doing that through JavaScript core? So you mean the phone part? That's JavaScript yeah. Oh, core, yeah. Yes, of, sorry. Yeah, this is two different JavaScript engines running here. In iOS, we use JavaScript core. In Android, is uh, it's V8, I think. Don't quote me in this. I don't know if it's Rhino or V8. Uh, I think it's probably Rhino. But it, it was Rhino. I'm not sure if it's anymore. We okay. wanted to transition to V8 one at one point. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure in which point we are. And in the watch is so. Do you do you mind talking about that for a minute? Because yeah, go uh, ahead. I, w- I would love to. So right now, um, we we have a model where you can write um, pure JavaScript applications already. If you think about it, you could, as you can run JavaScript on the phone, you could have just a super tiny shallow C app, a generic one that receives remote commands. Mm-hmm. And if you ask that remote thing to render a button or to render a label, you can also ask it to update that label, and you end up basically with an architecture that is similar to WatchOS 1, where the phone remotes control every single interaction on the watch. If you um, act on a button on the watch, um, you would res- we would transmit that via Bluetooth to the JavaScript that's running in the phone, and there you have an event listener, and you can act on it by saying, update that label, please, uh, and then you go back through Bluetooth and update that on the watch. You could totally build it, and in fact, rebuild it. That is um, what's called Pebble JS. So it is the experience is um, a JavaScript developer can build this, but there's a lot of latency involved. That's basically similar to WatchOS. And also, you always need to be connected to the phone because the logic is running on the phone. So what we transition to right now is um, we have several we have evaluated several JavaScript engines that are small enough to run on our tiny hardware. Again, we're talking kilobytes here. And right now we are. We actually have a firmware running that has JavaScript directly on the watch with web APIs so that you are, you can use your existing knowledge when you talk to, say, the accelerometer. You actually use the motion events that are known through web APIs. And even our drawing routines that are very specific for watch faces today are surfaced through the Canvas Context 2D API. So you really can leverage your existing JavaScript knowledge. Uh, we so, Heiko, um, yeah. for the iOS developers, yeah. what is Web API in, in JavaScript speak? So, that is more or less a standardized way that today is mostly surfaced through browsers. So, there's a whole bunch of APIs you would usually know as a JavaScript developer when you have a background in front-end development in browsers. So, today's browsers, even even Safari or WebKit um, web views, 
give you access to those. That includes, say, motion events or, or device orientation, or if you have a canvas element, how to draw on that element. And that is standardized across the board um, between the different browser vendors, including uh, WebKit, so that you can write your code once and it runs everywhere in a browser-y environment. Whereas Node, for example, has for many things different approaches, and that is just another set of API. Yes, it's still JavaScript, but in a different um, level of API. So you would need to relearn that. And our approach, even although we are talking about a very limited embedded device, our goal is to service the same web APIs that make sense in our context. And you would be surprised how broad the spectrum of web APIs is. So there is Bluetooth, LE, um, there's ambient light, there's vibration, and all that is standardized through the W3C. So yeah, think of it as the Cocoa Touch, but for web. So if you're developing your Pebble app, you can get the ambient light, a bunch of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to from JavaScript, but you're able to uh, in your Pebble app, you're writing it. So that's available from the device. So don't get me wrong. What this whole JavaScript on the watch is future talk. We, yes, we okay. are working on this, but um, all the capabilities, like you access the compass, you access the accelerometer, um, you access the buttons, you can manipulate every single pixel on the screen is already accessible to third-party developers and was for the last years. But that is still through C. So it's um, not the most prominent language today. Okay, very cool. I was going to get to the part where we talk about the features you can access from the C library, but you just went over that. So, okay, that's I, cool stuff. I I, I backed uh, the first Pebble on Kickstarter. And so I've had one since they first shipped. And when I first got it, uh, as an iOS developer, I was a little bit um, surprised and impressed just at the things you were able to do. In particular, I, I didn't realize until that point that it would even be possible to build a device that could get notifications that came through the phone and they, they weren't notifications from the pebble app they were just an, any notification that was a push notification on, on the phone showed up on the watch that makes me wonder i i just sort of like to know a little bit about some of the things like that that you are able to do with the, the built-in and public stuff on on ios when you build an accessory like well i, I don't want to call it an accessory when you build a device like pebble mm -hmm. so a little bit of history when the Pebble actually ship. Uh, that was iOS 6. Uh, so in that case, we didn't have the right APIs. Uh, so we could only do notifications for mail because we were basically doing two things. For SMS, we were imitating being a car uh, system that they also received the SMS through one of the Bluetooth Classic uh, protocols. And also, we were basically checking your mail from the application because you give us access inside the app. And that will check every hour or whatever and send your mail notifications internally to the watch. That was obviously limited and you will not be able to get Facebook notifications or whatever. However, to our surprise, uh, during the WWDC of iOS 7, Apple published their documentation and there was this thing that is very little known, which is called ANCS, Apple Notification Center Service, which is a Bluetooth LE service that every iPhone with LE capabilities and every iPad with LE capabilities support that basically publishes every notification that arrives to your notification center to any LE device that is interested in them. 
when we shipped the first Pebble watch, we were intelligent enough to actually include a Bluetooth LE chip. And that allows us to basically pair with LE to the world, to the phone and use those kind of services that Apple exposed for some reason in iOS 7 because it's not a typical Apple service. That is the service that we keep using until iOS 9, so today, for getting your notifications into your watch. And that's basically it. Like, it's very little known. There is some applications. For example, there is a an application called Notifier, very strangely written. We probably leave the link in the in the show notes, which is basically the same, but for your Mac. So you have it installed in your Mac and every notification that comes through uh, to your iPhone, it appears in your desktop. So it's very nice to not having to look at your phone. It just simply appears in your desktop. So if I'm hacking around on a, a Bluetooth device, do I have access to the same services you do? Do you have to do anything with Apple to get at this data? No. Uh, Bluetooth LE for uh, Apple is quite open. The only thing using LE... Uh, you need to ask then a little bit for permission is that you cannot use the iBeacon brand name for free. Uh, you have to go through their vetting process, but it's just a vetting process. Like, I want to use it. I want to use it in this context. And they tell you like, okay, but you cannot use it this way or you cannot use it that other way. But the rest of LE is completely for free. Every LE service published by the phone is completely open. As long as you pair your device and the and the user accepts the pairing of your device with the phone, there is a couple of other services that they they publish. Like um, there is one called AMS uh, Apple Music Service, which is basically to control uh, the music, like uh, volume up, volume down, which track is uh, playing, uh, play, pause, forward, backwards. I I don't remember exactly, but they have a lot of these small services for LE devices. And we basically use many of them to power our watch. Uh, when you get a notification on the Pebble, can you react to it? So on, like on, on the Apple Watch, you usually have options. And, and some things, like if you get a, a text, you can respond with text. Is that possible on Pebble? So when Daniel was actually describing that, it almost sounded um, too good to be true, right? Mm-hmm. You have access to all of that. And um, to be perfectly clear here, ANCS really is the bare minimum uh, of what Daniel was describing. So there's no structured information. If you um, send yourself a remote notification or schedule a local notification on iOS, you have the ability to structure that and actually attach additional information to it. What we receive via ANCS is nothing but the bundle ID, so whatever you submitted your application with, the title of the application, and some long string. Apple recently uh, introduced the ability to um, to what is a one and a half of data, and you can put all stuff, all all kinds of different information in it. We have no access to that whatsoever. So there are no images, nothing we have access to through ANCS. And also, so that, for example, makes it really hard to know, oh, uh, a friend on Facebook wants to be, there's a friend request. We have no idea which friend it really was. Um, so we could parse the text potentially, but then our product is also localized and that makes it really flaky. And also, if you think about it, everything, we don't have access to that from our phone. So even simple well, presumably simple use cases such as notification filtering, which we recently introduced, 
really require us to receive a notification on the watch where we have the bundle ID. Notification filtering really just means um, I don't want to have Facebook notifications, but email notifications, let's say. How do I know that the user doesn't want to have Facebook when the user configures that in our mobile phone's app? Well, the mobile phone cannot intercept that communication level. So what do we do here? We receive the notification on the watch and then, well, that's not entirely true, but what we need to do is we, we pass that information back through our communication channel to our phone's app where the phone app for the first time hears about that application because since iOS 9, Apple prevented us to scan for applications through um, URL schemes, we, we cannot really see if the user has Facebook at all. So we need to collect all the applications you ever received notifications from, but only the watch can do that. And then we, the user configures it and we need to transfer it back to the watch in order to filter over there. So the common pattern we have here is that we have always for every single use case, some APIs that somewhat do what we are aiming for, but they are never to the degree where they are fully useful to our use cases. Now, your question was, can we reply to notifications? Can we interact uh, with those? Since iOS 8, Apple introduced actionable notifications. So you can have like on an email, you can say delete that or archive that. It surfaced on the notification center and people would assume that a notification center service gives access to this. And it looks like it. If you look at the documentation, yes, there is a way, but Apple never implemented it. Well, for some things that it's something, but for example, a Facebook or any third party app, when they add actions, they don't show up via ANCS. And if you read closely, the documentation on ANCS mismatches. It does, there's no way that that API can ever reflect what a third-party developer does anyway. And it almost looks like these two teams came up with something that doesn't match. And the team that is responsible for implementing it, the ANCS team, never, never got around and implemented it anyway. So for more than a year, actually one and a half years now, we have this API called documented there and it does nothing. And yes, of course, we talk to Apple, but uh, and we have we have actually we know they the engineer. Told you to submit a radar. Uh, <laughs> we have several radars. Oh yes, <laughs> I can tell you how many bytes of changes they have done with the radars in the ANCS service, which is actually four bytes of changes. <laughs> wow, the place where well, things go to die. Three bytes and one bit. Actually, Jeez. also we you know. We're not stupid here. We, we reverse engineer things. We um, hack things. So we try to make that first working and with private APIs and everything. But in the end, we want to ship a consumer product. And there are just so many boundaries. So we actually recently introduced that, right? So reply to text messages. So Daniel, uh, how does that work? Yeah, like, so from iOS 9, you can actually provide an action in the notification that is like a, an, a text reply. And you can basically pull down and then write your text reply there. And if your keyboard doesn't disappear, you can send a text reply. So that part is not accessible for an ANCS at all. Like not even changes in the documentation implies that. So after waiting a little bit and find, uh, looking at our options, uh, we decide like, well, we will do it ourselves. So slowly, but uh, steadily. Uh, we are introducing text replies to SMS. Uh, we have now text replies for AT&T and other carriers are coming and we are thinking in other services like email. But basically what our users need to do is give us the authentication for using their SMS through AT&T servers or any other carrier servers. 
So it puts a little bit of configuration burden into the user, but we think it's worth it because answering very fast from your request is something that people actually love. Makes sense. So we have to go and do this system of talking with uh, uh, AT&T servers and things like that uh, just because we don't have access to all the APIs that Apple Watch use internally and will be so much better experience, but we don't have access to those. So let me disrupt the information flow here. Um, you receive a notification onto your, say, an iMessage or a text message onto your iPhone. It appears on your notification center on the lock screen. ANCS tells us, here is something. It came to the system app iMessage. So we know, okay, it's, it's potentially an SMS. And here's the text. So we parse that and find the caller ID. And then we use the carrier's web API to send back a text message. So on the watch, you dictate text, but we, there's no iOS way to somehow pass that text to something on INCS. So what we do is we have that text. Yes, the user wanted to reply. And we hand it over to the carrier API, AT&T, and they send a true, like a 20th century or 19, 21th century uh, text message to the caller ID this iMessage originated from. And you could extend that, ser that, that system in general towards every third party service, including, I don't know, WhatsApp or Facebook, but it would always require us to basically work around the fence we got through ANCS. It's actually, you put it easy because you say that we get the caller ID, but we don't get the caller ID. We get mom or something like that. We actually have to check in the address book for contacts that matches mom, ask you which one of the phones will be mom because you can probably have several for several phones for for your mother and actually send that. So something that should be very easy, like, hey, reply this text, please operating system, use this reply feature and send this text uh, becomes very complicated. We have to ask the user to give us a uh, access to their AT&T user account to send those things in their name. We have to ask uh, them for access to their address book. A lot of things build up when it was basically just there in the operating system. But it's something that is actually quite challenging and fun to find out these kind of solutions. Uh, we have many crazy ideas that are left on the side because they are very crazy, not completely possible or something like that. But some of them, we think our users uh, deserve having that those capabilities. Yeah, it's cool to hear how you're solving a lot of these problems, partially documented APIs and stuff like that. I, I wanted to ask a little bit about the developer experience. So if I have an iOS app and I integrate with a Pebble, do I have to write an app for it or can I? how else can I do it? That depends on the kind of application you want to implement. So, for example, if you are just a music app, say a podcast app, you already play well with the iOS ecosystem. And as Daniel said, there's a standardized API there. So if the Pebble detects that you're currently listening to a podcast, music, that includes Spotify and all the music services, Pebble itself will just be um, able to remote control you. I so love that, that by the way. I like when I go running and stuff. Just being able to control it from my watch instead of having to find the button on my headphones or anything else, it's really convenient. 
that's my cue then here for running apps and sports apps in general. So there's um, another class of applications, say RunKeeper, for example, had this already in, what is it, iOS 6. And until today, when you do sports activities, there is a special set of APIs you can use to just transfer your current lap or your pace and speed and, and time and all that for your sports activity. So for that, you would include um, the Pebble Kit, um, which is similar to the watch kit, like the Pebble Kit into your iOS application that's conveniently reachable through CocoaPods or how do you pronounce that? Cathark? Cathark. Sorry, we're both obviously from Europe. So that's you just include that into your application. And if you are a sports application, you basically just um, continuously um, update that status. So what's the current pace? What's the speed? Are you still exercising or not? And we surface that piece of information at a special place on Pebble. Now, if you want to have the other use case, say where to or Pandora has something that is um, pretty cute, then you need to write an application that physically runs on Pebble. And it's totally up to you how you set up the communication channel. So we, of course, we have APIs for all of that. So you can basically send either structured information or just a stream of data. But you are responsible to write both ends in order to achieve this, this whole user experience. Now, is the data sent through PebbleKit or are we going straight uh, Bluetooth? Well, PebbleKit is basically a convenience wrapper around Bluetooth here. So our newer watch, uh, watches work uh, with BLE. So if you use, and I actually, for all the listeners, I encourage heavily to upgrade to PebbleKit 3.0 because it allows you to use the new BLE APIs and that allows you to also communicate to the Pebble in the background. Multiple applications can talk to Pebble and also the transmission rate is way faster, so the bandwidth. And then um, it's basically on top of core Bluetooth. Oh, very cool. I'm wondering, you have a the original Pebble, and most, most Pebbles have a, a rectangular screen, but you have a Pebble Time Round, which has a round screen. This is kind of interesting because this means you're shipping devices with screens with different shapes, and I think that drives UI a lot. So I wonder how you support that for developers. How can you make a Pebble app that works well on a round screen and a, and a rectangular screen? Oh, this is such a great question. When we were, of course, that is exactly my domain, as I said, the UI kit for Pebble. We struggled a long time to which extent we want to abstract away the shape of the screen and everything. Do we want to have, and if you look then and do some research, there's not a single decent standard to do any of this. So I was hoping, so we were publishing the Pebble Time Round, the model you are mentioning, after this year's or last year's WWDC. And I was hoping so much for around Apple Watch because Apple has always great APIs, very thought through and everything. And I was hoping for the answer for round UI and they didn't ship it. So um, that was a bummer. And even, even the web then usually is the great place to look for diversity because they have to abstract away everything and it's dog. But again, there's one proposal for CSS round and it doesn't cover all the use cases we need. So they don't cover scrolling of text, for example, where you would need to reflow text as you scroll and that there are actually quite a few subtle challenges. What we have is basically not much. So we have the ability to position, say, labels somewhere on the screen and we can put it into a mode where we say, please flow the text according to the shape of the screen, even if so you, mentally, you still have a rectangular model, in that case, a square, and you position your label somewhere on the screen. And if you put the label into the mode that it flows the text, it would 
not extend beyond the boundaries of the rectangular label, but also not beyond the physical screen. That is for itself trivial. It becomes more complicated when you think about scrolling and also orphans. So sometimes you're, so first scrolling doesn't really work. If you move that up by five pixels, the whole text might reflow and you have a hard time to read text as you're scrolling. You cannot really um, continue to read as you scroll. So we changed the whole system to be pagination oriented. Um, you basically go from page to page, but then if you do that, you might end up with orphans. So just one word on a new page. So we also prevent that and we do that all transparently. So our UI system has basically two abstraction layers. Yes, we have something like a UI table view, um, and that just automatically works because that's trivial, actually. We have some standardized um, system cells where um, they just act differently on a round display also. So that means that in the center of the screen is the selected element, and that has more details, and we just strip out some details and make it um, a bit more narrow when it comes to the top and low end of the screen. This is all easy. But when you really want to have fine control on, on the screen, um, we equip you with text flow capabilities that are way more convenient than anything I could see at core text, for example. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. But it, it does sound like to some degree, developers are going to have to do yeah, the I mean, burden is onto the developer. Right. Yes. Um, we have actually tens of thousands of watch faces. Our developer ecosystem, um, considering our size, is flourishing. I, I really love it to work um, with, with so dedicated developers. And one of our most prominent use cases is to write watch faces. So custom things, showing your family or showing just, we have Star Trek watch faces. We have like weather watch faces or when Star Wars was on over Christmas, we had all the kinds of theme things here. It's, it's great to see that. But if they want to optimize for either rectangular or round, they need to consider it. Um, to make the best use of every single pixel on the screen. It basically gives you the flexibility. Uh, if you use a standard UI controls like the hour uh, table view and many of the screens, you will not have to think about it. They are both already thought for you. Like if you ask for a, sc a screen with an icon and a text, it's already there and you don't, ha you don't care if it's uh, rectangular or round. But if you need to, you can go to the lower level and with the update for the Pebble Time Round, all kind of new API f for angles and circles and yeah, yeah so like, there's uh, literally polar all... coordinates appear <laughs> that allows you to basically do what you need if UI that we provide is not enough for getting the visuals that you want for your WhatsApp in the Pebble Time Round. So you can not care and mostly it will work or you can care a lot and then you can go into that pixel perfect mode and do the screens basically different for round and, and rectangular. So in an uh, UI kit speech, so you, you know functions such as like uh, or call graphics like CG, Rect, Inset and stuff. So Think of it as give me a C-Rect at a given angle and radius for a given size and make sure it doesn't leave the screen and I want to have that rectangle so I can put my rectangle, my image of a size of so many pixels by so many pixels and it's visible on the screen. So we have really convenient routines like that to make it easier, but in the end you have to think through it. But we have uh, emulators for all the different devices 
and you can easily uh, iterate on on those different uh, screens that way without owning all the watches. Ah, cool. So I, it, it's just interesting to hear the thought process that's gone into this because I, I knew you would have thought deeply about it and worked hard on it. So my question is, let's say that I decide I want to build an app for the Pebble. Where do I get started? Do I just so go create a C program somewhere or are there instructions somewhere? Well, yes, of course. I mean, we have a dedicated developer relations team that does uh, run events, meetups, and is also responsible for the developer-facing documentation. If you go to developer.pedal.com, you can actually approach from different angles. In this case, it would be, oh, um, I have an iOS app. How do I start? There are plenty of tutorials. There are many open source um, GitHub examples. And one of the benefits of being such an open and, and hacking, uh, hackable um, platform is that many of our developers actually open source their ideas. So you can learn also from third party applications. And, um, yeah, that's basically it. So if you, if you would basically, we, we have an Android and also an iOS or a JavaScript example to start, actually multiple, um, to start with. And I would actually copy from there. But it's really as simple as uh, including the CocoaPod to your project. And then um, you have this Pebble Watch Central thing. And um, you ask for the watch that's connected. Is it connected or not? I want to send messages to it. And um, yeah, that's basically it. We do have an app store. So as an iOS developer, um, you could either ask, like, send, call our Pebble app that is basically the door to all the applications and user interactions on the phone. You could open that with a, our custom URL scheme and then pass the application or open the app store with your specific application. Or um, alternatively, you could also, or you should, place um, your companion Pebble app in the Pebble app store so that existing users learn about your iOS app even without having it in the first place. So we we actually have the ability, so users have the ability to um, search for those apps that run on iOS only, and then, um, yeah, they will find your iOS app um, through that channel as well. So it's, to some degree, even another marketing channel. How did you get away with shipping a, an app that allows users to download other apps? Because I know there's sort of a prohibition on app stores on the App Store, although a few have slipped through and, and shouldn't have. Uh, how did you get around that? Well, the first uh, thing here is that the code that we are downloading uh, doesn't run in the phone. So the rule says that you should not download and run code in the phone, uh, which we simply avoid because the code is running on the watch. Okay. So that's the first uh, thing that we are basically on the side of the App Store guidelines. So we don't have that problem in that sense. So now you might ask about the JavaScript that actually runs in the phone. And the answer to that is that the guidelines actually say that you cannot download and run code except through Safari, JavaScript core, and blah, blah, blah. There is a couple of uh, exceptions. Um, well, we use JavaScript core, and that's one of the reasons why JavaScript is there, besides being multi-platform and very known by a lot of people, so it's convenient. It's basically the language that we can use to download code and execute it in the phone. But not that easy as, uh, as it sounds because we have had a couple of uh, app reviews problems with that. So your code, the JavaScript code of every app in the App Store, zips inside the app, inside the iOS app, to avoid downloading the code. 
So let me get that right. Whenever we send an update to Apple to update our phone app, this app as a resource contains the entire app store of all JavaScript of all Pebble apps so that we actually technically never download the JavaScript portion of those Pebble apps, which is ridiculous. But it is a political um, decision we made in order to um, not conflict with any guidelines uh, with, to that regard. Another issue they had was, oh, App Store, that sounds like selling things. Mm -hmm. um, so until today, although they never really explicitly said that, so they, until today we shied away to actually implement a way to purchase apps. What happened instead is that third-party developers um, came up with quite creative ways to ask um, end users for money. So by now, I'm aware of two payment solutions around the Pebble ecosystem that allow third-party developers to still make money with their apps. And of course, there's always the obvious way to charge for the iOS app. But uh, until today, we don't have a paid app store built into our phone app because that might, may or may not um, create some problems here. As you can see, the relationship with Pebble is always a bit delicate. Um, and we try to, because I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that they ban us from the app store and then uh, the Pebble doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it's a very love-hate situation with uh, the, <laughs> app, the app store review team. Well, you and like me both. Like uh, a scare hate. Yeah, it's really a pity that we have to live through those kind of things to do really innovative things that will probably help the platform. Because uh, I always thought like um, there is people doing amazing things there and they are just crashing into into a review process that is very hard to to overcome in some senses. And there will be amazing products if they were a little bit more open in, with the community. Yeah, we can only hope it changes for the better in the future. Yeah, well, that, it can only go to better. Like, it cannot be worse, right? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> never say never. All right, any other questions or anything else we should talk about with the Pebble before we get to our picks? All I right. would really um, encourage developers to have another look at Pebble because you would be surprised um, how many things are possible on Pebble that are, until today, not even thinkable on, on Apple Watch. So you have access to all the sensors. You have actually, we have the ability to run background apps on the Pebble that always run in the background to, for example, um, gather accelerometer or compass data. And we do that for health-related um, research projects. And considering how low and durable this hardware is, you can think of use cases such as sailing or outdoor activities. Um, that's really, to me, a, a great plus when it comes to hackability of the platform. I was amazed that there is a diving app for the Pebble. Oh, so <laughs> I personally wrote an app that streams um, uh, video data um, to the Pebble. And actually, the Pebble itself can be submerged while doing so. So that's not fully, so you cannot really dive with it. So my, my dream was always to use a GoPro underwater and stream that then to your Pebble. Uh, and while people are using the Compass app underwater, we actually have a fanboy um, photo where somebody was on a diving uh, vacation, like snorkeling, is that the term? Snorkeling. And uh, looking at the Pebble, which, and took a photo. That's amazing. But considering that you always need to have the phone to actually transmit data and Bluetooth underwater doesn't really work well. <laughs> um, there are, of course, limitations. But at one hackathon, somebody did an application for um, the ISS. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure anybody at the ISS ever had a Pebble, but uh, it was still an interesting thought. Nice. So you're telling me that my Pebble time steel, I can actually go swim with it? 
So here's the problem. Um, our lawyer team would totally kill me for it, but I, I swim with it and I go into the sauna with it. There's absolutely no problem. But warranty will probably not give you another unit, although we are really um, open to... So I see many people that have um, problems with their watches that are three years old. And for the same reason, we still update software for our three-year-old um, original Pebbles. We are also very open to exchange watches if they don't work anymore. Um, I saw somebody who had actually a water leak. Um, I don't really sure what they did with it because you really need to crack it with a hammer. Um, but we, I, I know that for a fact you got a replacement unit. So I would I would give it a shot maybe, but don't quote me here. <laughs> <laughs> so officially no, but friend to friend, I do it all the time. Yes. I do it all the time. Okay, got it. The Pebble Time uh, still did ship in Nagos or something like that last year, and we were using it in pools and everything all the time before it was shipped. It's just you cannot put it in paper. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Andrew, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I've got a couple, uh, well, three picks today. My first pick is um, just a, a library that has been around for a while. It's one of Matt Thompson's libraries, but it came up again yesterday for me. And uh, one one thing that really, as a Mac developer, one thing that kind of bugs me when I'm on iOS is that there's no NSXML document. And so parsing, doing just really simple parsing of XML is a lot harder than I think it should be. Um, same goes for generating XML. So Matt wrote a, a little library called Ono that basically just duplicates the NSXML document API uh, for iOS. And it even means you could share code between iOS and Mac without a lot of trouble using NS doc, NSXML document. So that's Ono. Uh, my second pick is a new Mike Ash article. He did a, a post on his blog about Swift asserts and as usual, was really thorough, talked about how they're implemented, how they can be used, what the differences between the different kinds of asserts that are in Swift are, et cetera. So this is um, nice to read if you want to use uh, asserts in Swift. And I think they have a, a really good, you know, really good prominent place in Swift. And there's um, a lot of good arguments for using them. And then my last pick is, well, it's a person and his company. So I also happen to know he's an iFreaks listener, but his name's Anders Kirov, and he has a a company called SmartGo and a bunch of apps for the game of Go. And the reason I'm picking this is because in the news yesterday was that Google's AlphaGo beat, um, I, th I think he's, you know, the, the world champion, the best Go player in the world. And Go is a lot harder game to make a computer play than chess is. And so this is a big thing in, in the world of computer science, but it's also a big thing in the world of Go. And Anders has some really cool Go apps, both for learning and just playing Go uh, on iOS. So those are my picks. All right, Jane, what are your picks? Okay, I've got one pick. So here in the Northland, we just got through with our, our state high school hockey tournament. And most places are scratching their head why you would care about a high school hockey tournament. Um, but here it's a big deal. It's on all the TVs and everyone watches it. But it's not all about the hockey. You know, me and my friends, we watch the hockey. A lot of people tune in just for, you know, the hockey hair. You know, hockey hair has been a big thing for, you know, a certain subgroup for quite a while. You know, back in the 80s, 90s, the mullet was supreme. And, you know, I think the mullet, like Samson, keeps you young. Yarmir Yager, if you grabbed out your Sega and played NHL 94, 95, you could play Yarmir Yager. And he's still in the NHL. He's still scoring goals. So a lot of people tune in for, to the, the high school state hockey tournament to check out the hair. And they did a video of it. The 2016 Minnesota State High School Hockey All-Hair Team. And they have a guest judge, Barry Melrose, former NHL coach, hockey analyst, and a guy who knows a little bit about great hockey hair. 
you know, grown men talking about uh, teenage boys' hair might sound a little creepy, and you'd have a point, but I'm going to go with it. All proceeds go to help the Warriors Hockey, which helps disabled veterans um, play hockey. So, and that might be the most Minnesotan phrase I've ever uttered. Uh, anyway, check out the Minnesota State High School Hockey All-Hair Team. All right, uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw a couple of picks out there. The first one is a podcast wrap. So if you're a podcaster, it's especially funny, but it's funny if you listen to podcasts. It's pretty awesome. It's on Facebook, so you probably have to be signed in to see it. But uh, anyway, I really just kind of laughed quite a bit at it. So uh, that's going to be my pick this week. Uh, Heiko, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, actually, I have uh, three picks. My first one, and I know it's already been mentioned at a previous iFreak show, but it's Paint Code by Pixel Cut. Paint Code is a tool that allows you to create code, generate code that dynamically renders graphics. And I often describe it as a mix between Excel and Sketch. So you use it as a visual tool, but you can parameterize it with formulas. And that's just amazing. So most people use it for buttons and everything. But because it's also so close to core graphics, I oftentimes use it as a playground where I can um, iterate on various um, edge cases. And just recently, I used it so it also has the ability to um, export image sequences. So you have something like an, a vector art that takes various input parameters and they can export it as a sequence of PNGs, for example, for Apple Watch. But I used it to create an animated GIF to exp uh, explain some graphics APIs in a slideshow presentation, which is amazing because you can embed that into your slide deck um, and it acts exactly as Core Graphics does. So that's my first. My second, and I'm a total fan of tools, it's an article by Prashan and Deva, um, JetBrains, the unicorns Silicon Valley doesn't like to talk about. And JetBrains um, for iOS developers is, I think, mostly known for AppCode, which is an amazing IDE. And in this article, Prashan actually describes that silently over the course of the last 10 years, JetBrains continue to um, improve their tooling um, to be uh, among the top-notch IDEs. I personally think that their IDEs are the best. And it might not look as pretty as Xcode does look like, but that's the same um, angle he puts out in his article. It might not be sexy at first glance, but actually it's rock solid and great. In my third one, I stumbled over that this morning. It's an article. Her name is T.R. Hardy Robinson. The, the article's title is How to Move to Germany, the company ran, uh, the, the country ran from. How to move to Germany if Donald Trump is elected president. <laughs> and that, at first, the title resonated with me, but also it uh, reminded me how awesome, actually, uh, the country I'm from is. So I always consider the Silicon Valley to be the promised land for any programmer, and I moved here, and it's all great. But actually, um, she has her point. Um, uh, not only do we have beer and bratwurst and all that, we actually have a great social system and, you know, tuition-free university and unemployment uh, and, and guaranteed um, housing and everything. It's just great to get reminded of um, how a country could actually operate. So these are my three picks. I just want to drop another pick here. It's a talk, kind of old talk, 2010, called What We Actually Know About Software Development and Why We Believe It's True. Which, in which a uh, college professor starts debunking many of the myths that we repeat and repeat and repeat over and over, like the myth of the 10x programmer, the myth of the bugs get during the same phase are cheaper than bugs getting get during the later parts of the development process. And it's just amazing how many things we simply believe because we read them and how unscientific we are. 
uh, believing those things without proof, without scientific proof that those statements are true. And the talk finishes with a call for being more scientific and more ask yourself questions where those things come from, because that part is very important in the engineering mind. And we are not going to be a uh, proper engineering until we actually adopt many of those practices in other engineering fields. All right. Well, I'm going to just uh, pile on that. We actually had Greg Wilson, who gave that talk, and Andreas Stefik on Ruby Rogues about a year and a half ago. And we talked about that talk, and we talked about the ideas behind it. It was about a two-hour conversation, and it was really, really fascinating. So go watch the talk, and then go listen to the Ruby Rogues episode. I will. I didn't know about that. All right. Well, um, I don't think we have anything else. If people want to check out Pebble, uh, do you want to just plug the Twitter website, anything else real quick? So that will be for developers. So developer.pebble.com. Or if you want to engage with us on Twitter, that's Pebble Dev, like Pebble and Dev for developers. And we have a very vibrant Slack community. I don't know actually how to participate in that. You go to, I don't know, Slack and oh, ping us on Twitter and we tell you. But uh, we have thousands of developers hanging out over there. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thank you both for coming. Thank you to our panel as well. And we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 